So I'm going to preach to you about America at the crossroads. Probably every four years or so, I preach about voting and our country and our commitment and what the Bible says about that. I think most Christians are aware about God's instruction concerning the family. That's quite common in the New Testament. And we're probably quite familiar about God's teaching about the local church. However, many times people are unfamiliar with what God says to us as a nation and how he has dealt with nations down through history. You should know, and I think you probably do know, that America is a constitutional republic. What we mean by that is that our Constitution, along with the Bill of Rights, which is somewhat like a preamble, the Constitution would not face ratification until the Bill of Rights were written. And the first one we know quite well because it involves religion. Many of you probably are familiar that when James Madison presented the Constitution, it was the Baptist, the Danbury Baptist specifically, under the leadership of Pastor John Leland, that wrote the First Amendment to the Bill of Rights because they had suffered persecution. Baptists had been imprisoned here in America and they fled Europe where they had state churches where you would be imprisoned if you did preaching without a license, the state licensed church in Germany. It was Lutherans, of course, throughout much of Europe. It was the Catholic Church in England. It was the Church of England, the Anglican Church. And so they fled Europe. Our Forefathers fled Europe for freedom of religion, and they would not ratify the Constitution until the Bill of Rights was added. And that first one was written by the Danbury Baptists under the leadership of John Leland. The Bill of Rights and the Constitution are governing document, we would say, that preserve for us our God-given freedoms. The government doesn't give us our freedoms, our freedoms as all the way back to the Magna Carta and the Pilgrim's writings and, and all the others say that our freedoms are from God, our God-given freedoms. We are not, as some suppose, a democracy. We're not a democracy. There's a democratic party. We have a democratic process, but we're not a democracy. We're a constitutional republic. If we were a democracy, our laws and our government could be changed by the will of the majority. They could vote out our governing documents, and it's fearful that that could even happen. But we're not a democracy. We're a constitutional republic, and our religious freedom is a precious possession given to us at great price, great sacrifice by our founding fathers, our forefathers. They included, as I mentioned, the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights, which says, Congress shall pass no law respecting the establishment of a religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And it goes on to talk about the other four freedoms. We talk about the five freedoms. First one being, and the most important one, is the freedom of religion. And when our forefathers wrote freedom of religion, that meant freedom to worship. They often substituted religion for the word church. It's saying here in this First Amendment that Congress, our government, shall make no laws restricting the free establishment of religion, and we will not have a state church. They will not establish a church or prohibit the free exercise of our faith. 
we someday as Christians will give an account to God for all of our life. We'll give an account to God for the stewardship of our money, the stewardship of the gospel, the stewardship of our time, the stewardship of our freedom here in America. We'll answer to God for what we do with this. This nation has enjoyed a strong Christian influence in its founding. It's well documented. All you got to do is go to Washington. Bible verses are carved into the buildings, the Supreme Court and Congress, and they're all over. Our laws came to us historically from the Bible through the Blackstone commentaries that were incorporated into law. We have biblically-based laws that have a great heritage, but we have drifted dangerously far away from that. We would say in the last half a century, maybe a little bit longer, certainly since the 1950s, America has been adrift from our original documents and our founding father's vision for America. The great writer and Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer said, America is no longer a Christian nation. We simply have a Christian memory. And that's a pretty accurate statement. That's why we say America is post-Christian or secularists like to say it. We're post-modern, the same idea, the same, just a little different term. We're post-Christian, we're post-modern because we have laws that were based upon biblical principles, but we are trying through activist judges to set them aside and change America. We know this. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the Bible says, Psalm 33, verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Obviously, that's applied immediately to Israel, but it's applied to every nation henceforward. Blessed is the nation that honors God. God blesses that nation. So I've entitled my message, America at the Crossroads. I've organized my thoughts around two main ideas. First of all, the Bible and civil authority. What does the Bible say to civil authority? There's ecclesiastical authority. That's us in the church and church leaders. There's domestic authority. That's God's instruction to the home, mothers and fathers and children. But God has a lot to say to civil authority, to government. God only ordained three institutions. God created three institutions, the home, government, and the church. And he has something to say to all three of those institutions. And none of them are sacrosanct. The church has to bleed over into the family. The family bleeds over into government. Government bleeds over into the family and the church. None of them are sacrosanct. We work within similar sphere, and he gives us instruction for each one of them. The Bible and civil authority should Christians, I think some Christians think this way, don't take offense to this, should Christians stop and spend time trying to hinder or slow down or stop the moral and societal declension that we see going on around us. We find all around us in our society. Or as some Christians, I think, think, they may not say this, but they think, well, the Bible says evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. They're going to grow more and more. There'll be more and more evil men and seducers in our society. And so they're thinking, well, the Bible says that's what it's going to be like at the coming of the Lord. Maybe I'll just sit back, let society rot and decay, and that will bring on the Lord's return. Is that the way we're to think? Of course not. Jesus says to us, occupy until I come. 
The word occupy that he uses there in the Greek language is a military term. It's the idea of holding fast, of governing over, of taking responsibility for. We don't have the mentality, we don't have rapture fever, rapture mentality that, well, the world gets worse, God's got to come back, and so let's let it go to hell in a handbasket. That's not our mentality. Shouldn't be our mentality. The Bible and civil authority, number one, government significantly affects our lives. We cannot deny it. Government significantly affects our lives. Let me give you a couple more verses. Proverbs 29 verse 2 says, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. And they do. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. We've experienced that in our lifetime. Psalm 125 verse 3 says, For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. The scepter signifying rule, wickedness shall not rest upon the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous reach out their hands to iniquity. You get the principle that's being stated there. When the wicked rule, it forces righteous people to do things that they wouldn't do and participate in the things and pay for things that they don't want to, and it's displeasing to God. That's what it's saying. That's why we need righteous rulers, not wicked rulers. When the ungodly are in power, Christians are forced to underwrite and participate in programs that ultimately violate God's will and his word. For example, UX tax dollars provided aid for known enemies such as Iran. During the Obama administration, hundreds of millions of unmarked bills were flown over in planes and given to them to appease them in that administration's process of dealing with that government. Hundreds of millions of dollars. By the way, Iran's the biggest state sponsor of terrorism in the world. And we're sending our tax money over there. Or another example is federal funds. Federal funds also pay for Planned Parenthood abortions, which 70% of them are placed in black neighborhoods. And Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, called them a lesser race, and they needed to be eliminated, and they continue to do that. The highest percentage of abortions take place amongst the blacks in America. And we pay for it with our tax dollars. The infanticide of babies. Your tax dollars also underwrite uh, the ungodly LGBTQ, and the initials just keep growing, the LGBTQ propaganda and education that is in the public school starting in kindergarten. Well, the books deal with having two fathers and, and the whole LGBT agenda. Our tax dollars are paying for that whether our kids are there or not. The point is, government significantly affects our lives. And when we have ungodly leaders in office, we're paying for things that go contrary to the Scriptures. Proverbs 14, 34 says this, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to every people. How can our nation be righteous? So if you take that verse and you ponder it in your mind, that righteousness exalts a nation, sin tears down a nation. How can a nation be righteous if God's people don't participate? Because lost people aren't saying, well, how can we make our nation righteous? 
I mean, if you think about it, they're not concerned about righteousness being in leadership. No. And by the way, unsaved people and and people that are power hungry and power grabbers are necessarily going to gravitate towards governmental office because they can enrich themselves and they can rule over others. Unsaved man loves that. But the Bible tells us that righteousness exalts a nation. And how will that happen unless Christians involve themselves in government in promoting righteousness? It can't happen. According to researchers, maybe you've heard Ted Cruz quote this even this week. According to the research, in the 2016 presidential election, there were 54 million evangelicals that didn't even bother to vote. Now, from what I understand from the Scripture, that is a sin because you are the government. I am the government. We have a constitutional republic. We put people in office. We take people out of office. We are the government. And to not fulfill our civic duties is a sin. 54 million evangelicals didn't even show up. That would have completely changed any election. The prophet Jeremiah, who was carted off to Babylon with the southern nation of Israel, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, southern Israel, they were taken into captivity because of their sin, forgetting God, ignoring his laws. They were taken into captivity for 70 years. And Jeremiah, the prophet of God, was taken with him. This is what God says to Jeremiah. Here they are living as captives in a pagan land. God says to him, he says, seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray for it. Seek the peace of the city where I have carried you and pray for it. Or I have caused you to be carried away. Pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace, you will have peace. Jeremiah 29, verse 7. Jeremiah was told, he was instructed by God, to pray for the peace of Babylon, a very pagan nation with a pagan king, because as it's peaceful there, they'll be able to do the will of the Lord. We too must seek the peace and the welfare of our temporal home right here in America. We don't want to be pockets of Christians running off to church or running off to a Bible study or running off to a prayer meeting and having no impact or influence upon the culture all around us. That doesn't make sense. That isn't what God wants us to do. First, we're talking about civil authority. Government significantly affects our lives. Second, Christians should influence society. We should be world changers. We are to subdue and take dominion over Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. The very first command that God gave to Adam was to subdue. It's called the dominion mandate or the dominion command, as it's sometimes called. It's to take control and influence over every sphere in this world that God had given to Adam and his progeny that followed him. You're to harvest the crops for your good. You're to take the minerals out of the earth or the oil and gas out of the earth for your benefit. God has put everything in this world that we need. And he says you're to utilize it. You're to harness it. You're to harvest it. You are to be a good steward of it, but you're to use those things. And it's not just talking about the planet. It's talking about every sphere, every discipline, every genre of life, Christians, are to influence and take control of. 
over every legitimate sphere of influence. By the way, does the Bible have something to say about, about every discipline, about every genre, every aspect of life? It does. Let me give you a few examples. Does the Bible have something to say about economics? Yeah, you betcha. It talks about indebtedness. It talks about borrowing. It talks about materialism. It talks about free enterprise. Does the Bible have something to say about education? You betcha. The Bible has something to say about discipline. The Bible has something to say about attitude, parental involvement. The Bible has something to say about worldview in education. Does the Bible have something to say about art or music? You know, the arts. We think, well, yes, it does. The Bible has something to say about the subject matter. The Bible has something to say about art and music. Does it glorify God or does it deify man? Does it cause a sensual draw or does it lift our hearts and our thoughts? Does it accurately reflect life? So the Bible addresses that. We could ask ourselves the same question about science. We could ask ourselves the same question about medicine. We could talk about journalism. We could talk about entertainment. We could talk about government. The Bible addresses all of those. And the Bible tells us, God tells us, that we're to go into every sphere of influence in our society and in our culture, and we're to wield influence. We're to speak truth into that genre of society, and we're to have an influence on that society. And our forefathers certainly did. Do you know during the great revivals that every American newspaper in the area where the revivals were carrying, uh, they carried the full text of the sermons, reported how many people were saved, how many people were added to the church every week. That was at the front page of the newspaper. You know that all of our early universities were started primarily by pastors, Harvard, Yale, you go down through the list. Uh, all of them were started, and it says right on their gates, the opening gates, it says to train people for the gospel ministry. All of them in the beginning. Yes, the Bible tells us that it contains everything that's needed for life and godliness. Every sphere of influence that's needed, we need the Word of God in it or it will become corrupted. God wants us to be regenerated in our souls, be born again. He tells us that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. So he wants us to be regenerated in our souls. He wants us to be renewed in our mind. Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may approve of those things which are good and acceptable unto God. We need to be regenerated in our souls. We need to be renewed in our mind. And we need to be restrainers of sin in our society. Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, he says that we're to be salt and light. Now, we think of salt as a flavor enhancer, but in the ancient world, most of you know that salt was, yes, it was used as a flavor enhancer, but it was a retardant of decay. They didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have freezers. They would rub salt into the meat to preserve it. 
So he, he's saying, I've placed you in society to be salt, to stop the spread of disease, to stop the spread of sin, decay, and moral corruption. And we're to be light. What does light do? It drives away the darkness, telling us to be salt and light, to influence our society with our Christian testimony, with the truth of the Word of God. The world may not believe the Bible. The world may not believe the Bible has anything relevant to say to them. So we must demonstrate it to them. We must demonstrate that in every one of these disciplines, and I've mentioned a number of them, that the Bible is relevant and is true and we prosper when we apply the truth to the various disciplines. Let me give you an example, an illustration here. Let's say a thief breaks into my house in the middle of the night and wakes me up, or my wife probably wakes me up and says, a thief just broke in, wake up. And uh, he breaks into my house and he's there to uh, molest and steal and destroy. And I inform him, I have a gun and I'm ready to use it. I got a 44 mag here and I'm, I'm willing to use it. And he says, I don't believe in guns. That's something from America's past. And by the way, the government's outlawing them. I don't believe in guns. Give me two seconds, and I'll make him a believer in guns and in eternity. Okay? <laughs> two seconds, and he's a believer. I'm saying, listen, the world doesn't believe the Bible. Believe the Bible has something to say about education or government, or economics or art or any of that because they haven't heard it. But when they hear it and they see it, that it's truth and it's work and it's relevant, then it impacts them. It impacts them. Biblical truth is reality and it works, but skeptics need to see it lived out and proven. Third, Authorities must be instructed scripturally. Do you realize that that's our responsibility? you realize during the war of independence that we had chaplains, pastors were chaplains that preached to the truth, to the troops? And they were paid, by the way, by the government, just like the Senate has a chaplain. They preached war sermons to the men that went and fought for our liberty. Authorities must be instructed scripturally because we understand a serene national setting is best for spreading the gospel. It's very difficult to spread the gospel in Somalia where the government is chaos. There's really no government there. It's just a pirate government. You're looking out to try and live, let alone carry out the gospel. It's difficult to spread the gospel in North Korea. It's not a serene, peaceful setting for Christians. And we could go through all the nations that are on earth where there is peace and serenity and civil laws and Christian truth being proclaimed that Christians prosper and the gospel goes forth. That's why we've been able to send the gospel around the world through the missionary movement. A serene national setting is best for spreading the gospel. It's not easy to spread the gospel right now in Seattle or maybe Chicago because of the chaos that's going on. God established government to provide a peaceful and orderly context for men to be able to seek after him. 
First Peter chapter 2, let me read to you just a few verses, starting at verse 13. First Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. In other words, don't be lawbreakers. Honor God by being law keepers. Ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king who is supreme or to governors, lesser authority, and to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish or unbelieving men. The bottom line of government, the Bible tells us in Romans 13, of course, develops this a little bit more fully. The major purpose of government is to promote good and to punish evildoers. He does not bear the sword in vain. The purpose of government is to find out what is good for society and what is good for God's people and promote that to the praise of them and punish those who are doing evil. You know what's happening in America today? Good is being called evil and evil is being called good. Light is dark and dark is light rioters and shooters and burners and all of them are being held up and praised as expressing freedom of speech while those that are trying to defend their property or their shop or their house are being prosecuted as a couple did not very long ago the two lawyers who didn't even shoot they just came outside and tried to protect their property we realize that when government no longer sees biblical truth, everything becomes upside down. So it's our job to promote truth and to preach truth, to proclaim truth, right truth to our governmental leaders. Authorities must be instructed. And that's what the Bible tells us. Any one of the three institutions, civil authority, government, which is established by God, domestic tranquility, domestic authority, which is the home, or spiritual authority of the church. Those are the three institutions. Any one of them can become renegade, can throw off what the Bible teaches. A home can do that. A father could do that. A church could do that and say, I don't care about the Bible. I'm going to preach my own truth. Or a government can say, well, I don't care what the Bible says and become renegade to the truth. And it becomes a rogue family or rogue church or rogue government. And then it faces the judgment of God. Governmental leaders need to hear from us concerning God's truth, concerning God's laws. And you know what God often does? The Bible tells us this. God often sends a man or sometimes a woman to the very seat of power to change that government. Let me give you a few examples. Daniel Considered to be one of the most godly men that ever lived. Daniel was sent to the seat of power there in Babylon to preach truth. And he had great influence over three different nations that took power during his long, long lifetime. And he preached truth to all of the kings that led those three nations. We think of the Persians. Esther, a very unconventional way of getting to the seat of power. She was picked in the Miss Persia Beauty Contest. <laughs> Here she is, this beautiful woman, but she's taken to the king and she preaches truth to him. With the help of Mordecai, she preaches truth to him and it changed the laws in the land and it protected the Israelites. Isaiah, Isaiah was sent to the king of Judah to preach truth to him and he became a court 
confidant. He became a prophet to the king. Preached truth to him. Nehemiah, you know, he was a cupbearer. That doesn't mean that he just held out the cup of wine to the king, but he tasted it to make sure nobody had poisoned it. He was always with the king, and he was always giving advice to the king. And one day the king sees a sad countenance. He says, what's wrong? You're not sick. That's a sad countenance of the heart. He said, it's because of my people. My people are back in the land, but they don't want to go back there because the walls are broken down and nobody wants to live back there with no walls and no protection. And he says, I'll help you. What do you need? God sent Nehemiah to help the Israelites. He sent him to the seat of power there in that part of the world. Another example is Moses. Here's Egypt, the greatest nation on earth at the time. God sends Moses to Pharaoh to preach truth to him. He's got a hard heart, but he preaches truth to him, and he ends up delivering the Israelites, and they come into the land. But God uses a man. Another example is Joseph. God takes Joseph. He's in prison wrongly. But then he catapults him to be second in command over Egypt. And he preaches truth to the king. And he preserves the nation of Egypt. And in so doing, he preserves the nation of Israel. So God often sends godly people to office or to a position of authority in ungodly governments. We need to send people to positions of power. Maybe you're here today and you think, well, if you're really spiritual, you become a missionary. If you're kind of, you know, got a quasi-spiritual, maybe you take a stateside pastorate. But if you're really carnal, you'll go into politics. That's not right thinking. Christians need to say, somebody needs to go to Washington or somebody needs to go to the state house and influence it for God. Influence it for God. Third, here I see is that we need to encourage people to consider that. Edmund Burke said this, you've heard the quote, all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. All that is necessary for evil to triumph in our country is for us to sit on our hands. Every government is based upon a set of values which is derived from its dominant religion. Every single government in the world, the governmental laws are based upon a set of values that come out of its dominant religious system. In China, that's atheistic evolution. In the Middle East, that's Islam. In much of Europe, it's Catholicism. Here in America, it's been biblical Christianity. And our laws are drawn out of that dominant religion. And that's the way God intended it to be. Galatians 5.1, of course, is talking about not being under the law of the Old Testament, but it's applicable to us. Galatians 5.1 says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty, wherewith Christ hath made you free. And be not again entangled in the yoke of bondage. That's exactly what our forefathers would preach to us today. Listen, we came to this country for religious freedom. Why would you forsake it? Why would you invite socialism? Why would you invite Marxism where you're going to be repressed and you'll lose all of your religious freedom? Why would you want that? Why would that be so popular with the younger generation? Stand fast in the liberty. Christ has made you free. Don't go back to 
to bondage. Again, my second main idea is the Christian and his, his civic duty. So I'm going to get real practical here. We've talked about the Bible and civil authority. Now let's talk about the Christian and our civic duties or responsibilities, we could say. Let's look at some examples from past societies. I want you to turn your Bible. Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. I just got some verses that I want to give to you to ponder. Hosea, first of the minor prophets, chapter 4, verse 6. He says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. In other words, don't tell me what's going on. Don't warn me about the future. Don't tell me what's going on in California, New York, and Virginia. I don't want to hear it. I can't sleep at night. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from being priests for me. In other words, you won't be able to carry out your religion. If you reject the truth, if you reject knowledge, you're going to lose everything you have when it comes to religious freedom and opportunity to serve the Lord. Take another passage, Judges chapter 18. This is the story long after they've conquered the land. Every man was doing that which is right in his own eyes. Kind of sounds like our culture here today. And a group of Danites basically steal a priest. (laughs) He was a rogue priest, but they steal him anyway. And they steal some household gods. And they're looking for a place to settle down with their newfound religion. It says in Judges chapter 18, let me see, verse 7. I want to read that first. It gives you a little bit of context. It says, So the five men departed and went to Laish, and they saw the people there who were there, and how they dwelt safely in the manner of the Sidonians, quiet, secure. There were no rulers in the land who might put them to shame for anything. They were far from the Sidonians, and they had no ties with any well. In other words, they were just saying, We're living here, life is good. We don't have any authority over us. Uh, we really don't have anything to do with other people. I'll look at the next couple of verses, 27 and 28 of that same chapter. So these rebels, these rogue Danites come into land after the spies had checked it out. I'm verse 27. So they took the things Micah had made and the priest, his household god, and this priest that was serving one family who had belonged to him and they went to Laish to a people quiet and secure and they struck them with the edge of the sword and burned their cities with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon, the main city, and they had no ties with anyone. They didn't really, they just kind of lived in their own world. They had no ties with anyone, and it was the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. So they rebuilt the city, and they changed the name. After they destroyed all the people and all of their history, they renamed the city, and they began to live there. One more passage. First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. Saul has just been killed. David is beginning to coalesce the kingdom under him and the various tribes under him and what it says about them the sons of Issachar who had an understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do and it names all these different tribes and all these different groups but it singles out these men the men of Issachar the sons of Issachar who understood where they were living when they were living and what needed to be done the sons of Issachar who had understanding of the time to know what they ought to do in other words they understood what was going on in their world and they moved in the direction that God wanted them to move in this case so 
we have a responsibility to be informed and to act upon the information that we have and not just say, well, I'll dwell all by myself and life is good and hey, uh, this will pass. This is what Martin Luther said. He said, and he lived in tumultuous days, as you know. He was hunted. If we expound all of the Bible and yet avoid preaching on the various issues that the world and Satan are attacking in our day, then we're not really preaching Christ. You get that? He's even saying we can be preaching the Bible, but if we're not addressing the issues that we're facing in our society and in our culture that are affecting Christians, then we're really not preaching the Bible. We're skipping over that which is relevant. We don't want to do that. We're not to be just pockets of Christians living amongst pagans without any influence. We're to be world changers, world influencers. I've said it before, silence to sin equates to being a stamp of approval to sin. Now think that out. Silence to sin. If we see sin going on, whether it be your family, it could be the church, our society, silence to sin equates to being a stamp of approval to sin. We're saying, I'm okay with that. That's good by me. I've got a problem with that. Silence to sin is a stamp of approval to sin. There's a whole lot going on that we shouldn't be stamping our approval upon because God doesn't. Examples from past societies, what we just talked about. Let me give you some exhortations for Christian involvement and we got to close. What should we do? What's our responsibility? Number one, we need to pray for our leaders, those in authority over us. The Bible tells us that. The Bible commands that. That's why I called for four days of fasting and prayer. We got one left. And I know not everybody's going to come to church. So Wednesday, we had a good group here at the noon time. But I hope that you're taking our coming election seriously because it is the most important election of our lifetime. We're looking at either Marxism or continuing to have a constitutional republic. We're talking about stacking the courts or having nine judges. We're talking about having a wall and protecting our citizenry. We're talking about law and order and not having cities where you can do anything and there's no bond. If you're tried, you're set out free. The list goes on and on. It is important. We need to pray for those in authority over us. And by the way, a lot of them are propositions that are on the ballot. There's hundreds of propositions on the ballot throughout America. We have 115 right here. We're one of seven states that allow abortion all the way up until the day of birth. And if certain people have their way, then parents will have an option to decide whether they want that child to live after birth, as you well know. So we need to pray. Number two, we need to stay informed. We need to stay informed, and when we're informed, we need to contact our representatives. You realize that they say one email, one letter represents a thousand people, a thousand opinions. And most of us have those from AFA or many of those other organizations we get emailed from. All you got to do is click on it, click on it, click on it, and it sends it off. It's very easy to send it off. It's not like getting out pen and paper and writing a letter. We need to be informed. Listen, folks, you got to get signed up for some information emails. Probably most of you do do that. Frankly, it's discouraging. Matter of fact, sometimes it's frustrating. People say, are you doing okay? I'm a little angry right now. <laughs> That's what I want to say. I'm a little upset. 
Did you see what happened in California this week in California? This week in California on Friday, California, both the House and the Senate passed California CA 145. And it's now on the governor's desk. Governor Newsom has this bill on his desk. It eliminates the penalty or charges against pedophiles. It's saying we've persecuted these people. We have LGBTQ and their sex is all legal. Pedophiles are being persecuted. They call themselves MAPs. I've never heard that term, which stands for minor attracted persons. They're attracted to minors. They want their name added to the LGBTQ. They say, we're the most persecuted people in America. We're pedophile. That's the way we were created. And that's what they say. That's, we were created to have sex with young people. And it's passed both houses, and it's on Governor Newsom's death. And if I think I know something about Newsom, he's going to sign it. I get the ADF, Alliance Defending Freedom, letter. This week in Virginia, they added sexual orientation and gender identity language to the existing state law. I'm just going to read it to you. Under the law, churches, Christian schools, other Christian institutions face a choice. Either abandon biblical beliefs or face investigation, lawsuits, and fines of up to $100,000 per violation. Unlimited legal fees, court orders. In spite of the fact that Our Lady of Guadalupe versus Maurice Baru was before the Supreme Court, and it said that Christian or religious institutions can post and hire and discriminate based upon their doctrinal creed. In other words, a Mormon can't come in here and say, hey, I'm eminently qualified to serve on the pastoral staff. I could say, if you're eminently qualified, wrong. You're of the wrong faith. You're not born again. This law says you can't do that, and it says you can't post. I'll read it to you. It says... This new law also requires insurance companies to include sex reassignment procedures in the health plans that they sell. And there are no religious exemptions. Under Virginia law, churches, ministries, Christian schools cannot even explain their beliefs on their own website or face penalties. That's what I'm saying. The laws are changing so fast. And that's why Christians need to lift their voice. We need to pray, we need to be informed, and yes, it does get a little frustrating to be informed. I get a number of emails and blogs and online things that that keep me informed, and I'm sure I'm not the most informed person here today, but we need to be informed. Number three, we need to post the truth, expose error, whether that be on your Facebook page or On some internet blog, don't let falsehood, lies, unbiblical statements just stand out there. Oppose them. Speak the truth. Yes, speak it in love, but post the truth. That's part of being salt and light in society. If you've seen the commercials for Dennis Prager, he has five young people. I think it's five or six young people in that commercial. Atheists, homosexuals, etc., who were, some of them were converted, brought to Christ. Some of them simply just changed their mind because they heard and watched the Dennis Prager videos. I watch every one of them he produces. They were socialists, they were Marxists, and they were all changed because they got the truth. And he does it from a Judeo-Christian, often a biblical standpoint, these guest lecturers. And they were all changed. It's just a commercial. 
So post the truth. Number four, vote. I wouldn't ask for a show of hands here, but I hope you're registered to vote. If you're not, you can do that in this state up till October 26th. I think I looked it up yesterday, October 26th. If you're not registered to vote, get registered. If you're not sure what party to register for, talk to me afterwards. <laughs> Register to vote and vote. In Colorado, it's very easy, maybe too easy. We can vote by mail. I wouldn't even put it in the mail. I'd drop it off at the drop box. So vote. Number five, get involved in helping a candidate. First time in my life. And I voted every time I've been eligible since I was 18, every single election. First time in my life I'm sending money to candidates because it's that important to me. Get involved helping a candidate or become a candidate, maybe we would say. We have a generation of people that equate the end of America with the end of the world. <laughs> we can't do that. That wasn't true when the Marxists took over Russia. That wasn't true when the Marxists took over China. The Lord didn't come back for those two nations. That wasn't true when so many other countries were taken over by Islam and the Christians are being killed. The Lord didn't come back. Somehow we think that the Lord's return is somehow tied to America. I hope it would be, but I don't think so. And we can't live that way. Do we plan to leave a suitable culture or even a Judeo-Christian culture for our children and our grandchildren? It won't happen unless we do the very things the Bible instructs us to do that I've been driving home to you today. Let's put up Second Chronicles 7.14. Would you do that, Josh, here on our screen? Would you stand together with me? Let's say this verse together, Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Let's be praying that. Let's be fasting and praying. Let's be doing these closing exhortations that I gave you. And let's ask God to be merciful to America. Let's pray. Father, we believe that America is at a crossroads. We know that some running for office are being very deceptive about their future plans and their platform. And when they're questioned, they lie. But we don't want to be ignorant. We want to be informed. We want to vote a biblically informed conscience. And we want to help those who are trying to do right and running for office. So we pray, Lord, be merciful to us as a nation, us as a culture. Lord, we know we deserve judgment because millions of babies have been killed in the womb. We know that Evil is often being promoted in society. We know we deserve judgment, but be merciful to us. Preserve us. We know that we can serve God in a nation that's run by socialists and Marxists or those that have no fear of the Lord, but it'll be much harder. So we ask for your mercy. We ask for your grace. 
In Jesus' name, amen.